Tech Trends is an original podcast series that dives into topics like quantum computing, 5G, and design thinking. Our conversations touch on how tech can transform the way businesses deliver for their customers, clients, and communities. For more information, visit jpmorgan.com technology. Hi there, I'm Jennifer Strong, and I've got some exciting news. We're launching season four of this podcast, and there are so many stories I can't wait to tell you about. I've also got news about the extortion economy, the show our team made with ProPublica about ransomware. It's been nominated for an award by the Podcast Academy, which is kind of like the Oscars of podcasting. We've also got a brand new series about the search for the origin of COVID-19. It's called Curious Coincidence. We've come so far since launching Tech Review's first newsroom podcast in 2020, and none of it would be possible without you. So thank you for being here and thanks for listening. So I want to take you back to where it all started with a look at how police are using face recognition. This is episode one of In Machines We Trust from August 2020. This is MIT Technology Review. I was completely shocked and stunned to be arrested in broad daylight in front of my daughter, in front of my wife, in front of my neighbors. It was one of the most shocking things I ever had happened to me. That's Robert Williams. He's describing what happened outside of his home in an affluent suburb of Detroit called Farmington Hills back in January. The day started like any other. It's just a boring Thursday. He got up, went to work, but then things got weird. On the phone with Melissa around four. Melissa is his wife. They're in the middle of a call when he hears the other line. I click over. I'm like, hello, Robert. And I'm like, who is this? You need to come down and turn yourself in. Who is this? The officer is somebody from the third precinct, and I need to turn myself in for what? So he's like, I can't tell you that. I'm like, then I can't come down. Well, if you come down, it'll be much easier on you. You don't want us to come out to your job, do you? At this point, I think it's a prank call. So I'm like, look, man, if you want me to come get me, I'll be at home. Bring a warrant, and I hang up on them. Melissa's at home waiting for her mom and daughter, and she goes to greet them when they pull in. And as I was walking through, I looked out, and the cop car was outside, and I said, oh, so it wasn't a prank call. There really are people here. They came to the door. I answered it, and they kind of stuck their foot in the door and said, send Robert out. And I said, he's not here. And they said, we just saw him come out of that van. And I said, that was my mom. He's not here. Clearly, something is very wrong, but they don't know what it is. There's got to be a mistaken identity or something. I don't know why Detroit police are at my house. Turns out they were there because facial recognition software had wrongly matched his driver's license photo to security camera footage of a person stealing watches. I pull in the driveway here, pull up in my regular spot, hop out. By the time I close the door, the car is in the driveway blocking me in. And they park this way across the <laughs> across my driveway as if I'm going to back out or something and, and try to take off. As soon as he shut the door, they were right on him. And I was in here still because I had the girls. And they were already starting to cuff him by the time we get out there. He told his daughter to go back inside, that the police were making a mistake and he'd be right back. But he wasn't right back. The police took him into custody and he spent the night in jail. He still had no idea what was going on, and he was angry. 
But he says, as a black man, he had to consider what could happen if he let that show. So he stayed calm and he waited. The next morning, officers showed him some photos of a man stealing watches. Except those photos weren't of him. They were someone else. So that's not you? I look. I said, no, that's not me. He turns another paper over. He said, I guess that's not you either. I picked that paper up and hold it next to my face. And I said, this is not me. I'm like, I hope y'all don't think all black people look alike. And then he says, the computer says it's you. If he'd have just brought the picture with him, he could have looked it up and down and he could have left and said, oh, my bad. I didn't mean to bother you. What's unusual about this story is Robert Williams was told, because police aren't required to disclose that. Facial recognition isn't regulated. Not how it's used by law enforcement, not how it's used by employers. I'm Jennifer Strong, and this is episode one of a new series exploring what happens when everything around us gets automated. We're kicking things off with a four-part look at facial recognition and policing. We'll meet people building this technology, fighting against it, and trying to regulate how it gets used. Hmm. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. Think of it this way. Facial recognition is being used as a search engine for criminals, and your face is the search term. By 2016, the faces of half of all U.S. adults were believed to be stored inside systems police use to name suspects. Some refer to it as the perpetual lineup. But the nation may be at an inflection point, both in its relationship with policing and with this technology. And after the wrongful arrest of Robert Williams came to light, Detroit police say they'll only use facial recognition to investigate violent crimes. And they'll do it with still photos because those are more likely to produce an accurate match. But is it enough? Okay, so at the moment we're in East London in a place called Stratford. Peter Fussy is a criminologist at the University of Essex. I took a walk with him back in February before the pandemic which has historically been an area of a lot of deprivation, which had an awful lot of investment just before the 2012 Olympics, which was staged here. It's a spot where the London police tested cameras that match faces with identities in real time. You are part of a team working on a national surveillance strategy, is that right? So we're part of a a research project. We look at emerging technology and the the human rights implications. Separate to that, I also work with the surveillance camera regulator in the UK and I lead part of his strategy on human rights. He studied technological surveillance for more than 20 years. Started looking at closed-circuit television, CCTV cameras, the very familiar on-street CCTV. I was always surprised by how little people seemed concerned about it. I'd be, you know, making an ardent case for for why we should regulate, and it was largely met with indifference. And facial recognition seems very different. It has caught the public imagination. It is in the media on a daily basis. 
Well, your face can tell people a lot more than you might think. In a new world of facial recognition technology, your every move can be tracked. These shoppers don't know it, but a computer is scanning their faces and comparing their features to those of known shoplifters. It's horrible. It's an invasion of privacy. This technology is being installed with zero public oversight and accountability. We're being bullied into taking our picture in order to get our keys. Even pop star Taylor Swift secretly deployed the technology to root out stalkers. But while the public outcry has led some places to ban the technology, including tech hub cities like San Francisco and Cambridge, Massachusetts, where MIT is based, London's police tested a highly aggressive version of it in 10 different public spaces. What you see in the UK is live facial recognition, which means that there is a database of individuals the police are interested in. Then, as the public walks past the camera, each of those people is scanned and then matched against that database. Here, you are enacting surveillance before you know any offence. It's one thing for a police department to hold up a photo of someone to try to identify them in a system, and it's something very different to have live identification happening in real time. Yeah, that's exactly right, and I think it's a really important part of the debate that often gets lost. The other difference is that existing cameras or low-tech, analogue human surveillance doesn't involve biometric data, which is universally seen as an intrusive practice. And that special category of data has to be safely sorted and stored. And as he points out, no human can possibly process the volume that's being captured by these systems. That raises some serious questions about how proportionate that is, for instance, how necessary it is to biometrically scan tens of thousands of people just because you're interested in talking to somebody. Now, if it's a known killer on the loose or the example that's always given of a terrorist attack about to happen, then that's different. You can make a much stronger necessity and proportionality argument around that, but less so if it's just somebody you're interested in talking to about an incident of antisocial behaviour or something like that. Well, the other question, I mean, you say humans can't process that information, but also it's unclear whether the technology can yet either. What happens if you're falsely identified? If the camera says that you are a suspect, you're somebody on the watch list, how many times do we know it's correct? In our research, we found it was correct eight times out of 42. So on six full days sitting in police vans, eight times. He did the only independent review of these trials, and he found it was accurate less than 20% of the time. It may work brilliantly in lab conditions, but, you know, outside, like an environment we're in now, the light is fading, it's winter light. Much of the intelligence picture for a lot of the offences are linked to the nighttime economy, so facial recognition works less well in low light and all sorts of issues around that. It's also less effective across different demographics. So not just ethnicity or race ethnicity, but also gender. And that, you know, then folds into a whole issue around transgender rights and age as well. You know, you say... For example, kids' faces are harder for the technology to read. That's because they're still developing. Why that's important is if the police are using a technology which is not as effective for different groups, then unless they are aware of those limitations and unless they can somehow mitigate against them, then it's impossible to say that they are employing a technology that is compatible with human rights. How do you align a human rights and a surveillance strategy? 
we often think about things like security as being oppositional to human rights. Well, of course, the, the first responsibility of states under the UN Declaration of Human Rights is for states to provide for the safety and security of its citizens. So there's often this framing of liberty versus security, which myself and my colleagues would find quite unhelpful. You know, you can have both and you can have neither. We make our way to another spot he wants to show me. Just at the end of this bridge, you can see a pole with some cameras on it. If you were walking along this bridge towards those cameras, you would get to a point where there was a sign saying that facial recognition was in operation. Now, if you wanted to continue your journey, you would have to walk past those cameras. However, the police were saying this was a trial. So if you didn't want to be part of that trial, you had to turn around. And to get to the same point behind those cameras would take about a 20-minute detour. Okay, so this part is really important. Here there's no real meaningful consent. If you withdraw consent because you don't want to be on the camera, then you should be able to withdraw consent without penalty. Otherwise, it's not consent. Something else? When you walk down the street, are you aware of the times you cross from a public sidewalk onto concrete that's owned by a business? Did you know your rights to privacy might be different in just a few steps? So here where we're standing outside Westfield Shopping Mall is private space. But we feel it's public. There's lots of people around here. It, it has the sense of a public space. What happens, though, is if you walk 30 metres to, to our left, you're in a public area and all the cameras are owned by public authorities. And if you walk 30 metres to our right, they're owned by private companies. Now, uh, what, what about the one over your head? Which one? That one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is owned by a private company. The difference comes back to a simple point. Public groups are meant to be accountable to the public. And if private companies grab an image of your face, they can do just about whatever they want with it. It's also worth mentioning what happened to a man who didn't want to participate in one of those police trials. So he covered his face, and the BBC captured it on tape. Police stopped him. They photographed him anyway. An argument followed. The police said this was disorderly behavior, so they gave him a fine. If I want to cover my face, I'll cover my face. I've got a now 90-pound fine. We'll be back in a moment, right after this. Tech Trends is an original podcast series that dives into topics like quantum computing, 5G, and design thinking. Our conversations touch on how tech can transform the way businesses deliver for their customers, clients, and communities. The real power of design thinking from a business perspective is really getting to know your clients, understanding what their needs are, and finding the right problem to solve for your clients. Employees really like to give back in their day job, and this isn't just the most junior employees or your millennial generation, it's everybody. For more information, visit jpmorgan.com technology. Facial recognition works by mapping out the unique set of measurements between your features, like the spacing between your eyes, the length of your nose, and the curvature of your lips. The earliest systems were invented in the 1960s, but for decades the technology wasn't really useful. Then, in the early 2000s, local law enforcement in Florida created a statewide face recognition program. A decade after that, Facebook invented a new way to start recognizing and auto-tagging people in photos, rapidly improving face recognition to what we have today. Now it's widely used in airports and by police, but there's little transparency about what systems are used or how. 
Anytime surveillance gets legitimized, then it is open to be expanded over time. Haman Khan is an activist fighting against the use of surveillance and many other technological tools used by Los Angeles police. And has historically been used to trace and track and monitor and stalk uh, particular communities. Communities who are poor, communities who are black and brown, communities who would be considered suspect, queer trans bodies. It's, it's, it's a process of social control. Khan created the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, a group he describes as fiercely abolitionist. He doesn't think restricting the way police use facial recognition will work. And so, during what could best be described as a tsunami of adoption, with debate mostly focused on best practices, his focus is on getting these technologies banned. Algorithms have no place in policing. I think it's crucial that we understand that because there are lives at stake. And it's been successful. Several data policing and predictive policing programs in Los Angeles ended after public and legal pressure from his group. To Khan, part of how we got to this moment is by changing the way we define and police suspicious activity. The definition is that it's observed behavior reasonably indicative of pre-operational planning of criminal and or terrorist activity. So you're observing somebody's behavior, not a fact but a concern that a person may be thinking of doing something wrong. Right. So this is now going into that speculative and hunch-based policing is real. What we do know, thanks to academic and government research, is facial recognition works best on white men. Hi, camera. I've got a face. Can you see my face? No glasses face? You can That's see MIT researcher Joy Boilemwini giving a TED Talk. So what's going on? Why isn't my face being detected? Well, we have to look at how we give machines sight. So how this works is you create a training set with examples of faces. This is a face, this is a face. This is not a face. And over time, you can teach a computer how to recognize other faces. However, if the training sets aren't really that diverse, any face that deviates too much from the established norm will be harder to detect, which is what was happening to me. In 2018, she led a groundbreaking study showing that commercial face recognition systems repeatedly failed to classify dark-skinned women, like her. A year later, a major report from a federal agency called NIST, or the National Institute of Standards and Technology, found some were up to 100 times more likely to falsely match photos of people of color. But even if these systems can be engineered to reach perfect accuracy, they can be used in dangerous ways. And these problems go deeper than just skewed data and imperfect math. Technology is not operating by itself. From the, from the design to the production to the deployment, there is constantly bias built in. And it's not just the biases of the people themselves. That is only one part of it. It's the inherent bias within the system. Next episode, would it be surprising that photos of you, including some you've maybe never seen, are used by companies to build facial recognition systems? On Twitter, do you remember this photo at all? Uh, no, I didn't know that was taken. I, I look very... Um... <laughs> you do. You look very serious in that one. <laughs> really serious. Yeah. In part two, we meet the founder of one of the most controversial companies working in this space, Clearview AI's chief executive, Quantan Tat. This episode was reported and produced by me, 
Tate Ryan Mosley and Emma Silicons. We had help from Karen Howe and Benji Rosen. We're edited by Michael Riley and Gideon Litchfield. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Special thanks to Kyle Thomas Hemingway, Eric Mongin, and to the ACLU for sharing their recordings of Robert Williams. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.